Ferris B'nai Torah presents The Schmooze, an engaging and motivating Musar and Hashkafa series that deals with real-life issues. The tapes this evening are sponsored by Eli Newman, a good friend of the Queen's branch of Torah B'nai Torah. He's recently engaged, and the Mount of and the tapes are schus that the zivig should be oliyafe. He should be zochet to build a bias neman v'yisrael. On Yom Kippur day, we read Mafter Yonah, and I think there's a typical understanding of the basic storyline that's often that often misses much of what really goes on. So what I'd like to do is just very quickly go through the story as it's read from the Navi. And then we'll see if we can get a better understanding of what actually happens. The Navi begins by saying that Hashem appears to Yonah and says to him, Go to Nineveh, the great city. Go call to them because their wickedness has appeared before me. What does Yonah do? As soon as Hashem asks him to go to, to Nineveh, Yonah runs away. He runs away to Yafo, to the port city, gets on a boat that's headed towards Tarshish. The Pasuk bothers to tell us that he pays the schar for that boat. He pays for it. And then he goes on the boat. When he's on the boat, Hashem sends a very powerful wind, a tempest. And the boat itself seems to be breaking. It's literally being threatened to be destroyed at sea. The sailors begin each crying out to their God. They throw off the kalim, various vessels, to lighten the boat. At that point, Yonah goes to the very bottom of the boat and he falls asleep. The Rav Chovel, the master sailor, comes down, finds him there and says, Nirdom, sleeping one, why are you sleeping? Go call out to your God, maybe he'll save you. At which point, all of the passengers on the boat apparently see that it's a, to no avail. They begin pulling lots. Napil Goralos, they pull lots to see who is responsible which passenger is it the one who the gods want to get? And that lot falls on Yonah. They say to Yonah, who are you? Why is this bad coming about because of you? And Yonah just answers, Ivri Anochi, I'm a Jew. I serve Hashem, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Amazingly, the Pesach says, the men fear a great, great fear. And they ask him, what did you do? No response. But then they say to Yonah, what should we do to save the boat? He says, your only hope is to throw me in the sea. They don't want to. Instead, they try to turn the boat back to sea. They're unable to. Finally, the sailors on the boat call out to Hashem and say, please let us not be guilty for killing an innocent man. At which point, they pick Yonah up, throw him into the sea, and the sea calms down. A dog comes, swallows up Yonah. From within that dog, Yonah davens to Hashem. The dog comes close to shore, spits Yonah out. Yonah goes to the city of Nineveh, says in Nevoah, the city does tshuva. And that's the basic storyline of this Sefer. And I think the first inkling that there's a whole lot more going on is an obvious question that the Barbanel asks. And the Barbanel asks, why is this Sefer in Nach? Why do we have four parakim? that have literally nothing to do with the Klyosol. The Nevi'im were written down for a message for Doros, for us, the Jewish nation. This is an interesting story about Nineveh, a Gentile city, an interesting story about a Nevoah given to Yonah about that Gentile city. It has nothing to do with Jews, shouldn't be in the Nevi'im at all. 
And Ibabanel says that there are two basic reasons why it was included. Number one, to let us know that anyone is accepted in tshuva, that Hashem accepts tshuva even from a Gentile nation if they do an appropriate and proper tshuva. And then amazingly, the Barmanel says something very different. He says the other reason why this is included in the Vim is to teach us tokef chasiduso shel yona, to teach us the intensity of the righteousness of yona. This is a book that will demonstrate to you how from, how religious, how dedicated to Hashem's work was this man Yonah. And the only problem is that it doesn't seem to be anywhere in the book. Anywhere throughout reading this Novi, you don't see any description of Chasiduso, his righteousness, his holiness, his great Sidkis. As a matter of fact, Yonah does not come out looking very good at all. And what I'd like to do is revisit the story through the eyes of the Rishonim, particularly through the eyes of the Barbanel, and see if we can get a better grip as to exactly what was going on and what is the great Chasidus, the great righteousness of this Novi Yonah. So the Barbanel explains that this time period is long after the glory days of the kingdoms of David and Shlomo. This is actually a hundred years before the destruction of the Beis Amikdash, and at this point, the Jewish nation is very, very far from where we should have been. Much of the Klai Yisrael is now serving of Adazara, and already much has gone wrong. At this point in history, Ashur, the Assyrians, had already exiled Ruvain, God, and Chatzis Shevet Menashe, who were on the other side of the Yardin. The Assyrians came, attacked, and exiled two and a half of our Shvatim. And the Barmanel explains when this Pasuk opens up, Hashem was revealing something to Yonah. And that something was that the Jewish nation are now fit and roi as a whole to be exiled. And if it could be, Hashem had a problem. Because Hashem had planned that the Assyrians, Ashur, were to be the ones to exile the Jewish nations. They were the ones to attack the Klai Yisrael. But the problem was that the that Usher themselves was such Rishoyim, they were so wicked that they no longer deserved to be kept alive. And if it could be, Hashem had a problem. His plan was Usher should attack, but according to the Cheshben, according to the just system with which Hashem runs the world, Usher no longer deserved to be alive as a nation. And Hashem wanted to send Yonah as the Novi to bring back Usher to Tshuva so that they could then exile the Jewish nation. The capital city of Ashur was Ninveh, and it was to that city that Hashem sent Yonah to get Ashur to do tshuva. And the Abarmanel explains that when Yonah understood what it was that Hashem said, Yonah's attitude was quite simple. You are the creator of the heavens and the earth, you are the master of this universe, you have a plan, you want to exile the Jewish nation, you want the Ashur Assyrians to do tshuva, that's a fine plan, count me out. I will not be a participant if it means damaging the Klaistral, if it means my being a part of the exile of the Jewish nation, count me out, I want no part of it. And as a matter of fact, Yonah's plan was quite simple. You see, Hashem did not yet give him the nevuah. If a Novi is given an exact directive, a nevuah to say over, and he doesn't give it, he's Chayv Misa. Hashem didn't give him the nevuah yet, Hashem told him what the nevuah was going to be about. And Yonah made a very simple cheshben. At this point, typically, Hashem only gave nevuah inside Eretz Yisrael. Since Hashem did not yet give him the nevuah, 
Very simple. All I have to do is leave the land of Israel. He ran to Yaffa, the closest port city, got on a boat, any boat. He didn't care as long as it got him off of Jewish soil, off of Eretz Israel land. And again, the simple reason being because he didn't want to receive the Nevoah, because he didn't want to have to say it, because he wanted no part of this plan. What's interesting to note is that the Barmanel points out that the Pusik is telling us something interesting. He gets on a boat and he pays schara. He pays the fare of the boat. As if to let us know that Yonah didn't kind of jump the turnstiles. He really paid the, uh, paid the fare. Says the Barmanel, the Pusik doesn't have to tell us he paid the fare. What the Pusik is telling us is something interesting. What the Pusik is saying is that Yonah paid the fare for the entire boat because he wanted that boat empty. Because he knew fully well that he might die at sea. As a matter of fact, the Mechilta brings down in the name of Rabbi Yochanan that Yonah went to die. He went fully cognizant and fully aware of the fact that most likely Hashem would kill him for what he was doing. Even though he wasn't technically Chayev Misa, what he was doing was running away from the Nevoah, from receiving Nevoah. Hence he knew likely Hashem would kill him but he was dedicated to this concept, I will not be a part of damaging the Jewish nation. He gets on the boat, and the boat sails, at which point the storm begins threatening to destroy the boat. What does Yonah do? He goes down to the very bottom of the boat. And the Rishonim explained why did he park himself down there? Also for a very simple reason. He made a simple cheshbon. Likely Hashem is going to drown me. If I go to the bottom, Hashem will bring the water on the bottom, I will drown, and the rest of the innocent people will be saved. And while everyone else is crying out to their gods, he's there asleep on the bottom, the Rav Chovel finds him, the head sailor finds him and says, what are you doing there? Get up and call out to your gods. At which point, Yonah joins up, he goes up to the deck. The Pasuk then amazingly says that these sailors, Vayipal Goralos, they pick lots. Now the Barbanel is bothered by an obvious question. What makes them certain that one of the passengers on this boat is, is responsible? It's a sea. There are tempests at sea. It's a natural course of events. You're religious. You call out to your God to save you. But why are they going through this effort of finding out who is the responsible party as if they're certain that somebody on this boat is targeted by the storm? The Barbanel explains quite simply that there was something unique going on. This boat was threatened by the storm. This boat and no, none other. From the deck of the boat, they were able to see out other boats at sea who were passing calmly. The storm surrounded this boat, but nowhere else on the open seas. And from that, they understood that something miraculous was happening because this boat was targeted, and they understood something rather unique is occurring and they understood that somebody on this boat is responsible. And the interesting thing is that the Pasuk says, They pulled many lots, many different type of lots to find out who it was that was responsible. Yet the very next words is, The singular, the one Goral came out on Yonah, says the Barmanel, why? Because of all the lots that they pulled, every one of them came out on Yonah. This type, that type, through all the divinations, Every one of them came out on Yonah, and they knew quite clearly that he was the one who was responsible. And they said to him, What terrible calamity have you done? What horrific acts have you been involved in? Ma malachtacha, ma'antava, where are you coming from? 
Yonah's answer is quite simple. Ivri Anochi, es Hashem Elokei I fear God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, at which point the sailors, the people on the boat, were filled with Yira Gedola, with a very great fear, because they understood that this man was a man of God, they understood Hashem was targeting him, and they understood that there was something monumental occurring right in front of their eyes. What have you done, they asked. He wouldn't answer. What should we do to be saved? And listen to what he says. sauni vehiteluni. Says the Targum, you know what this means? Test me. Throw me in the water and test it. And you know why that is? Because the Be'er Rebbe explains that actually Yonah told him there's only one hope. You have to throw me in the, river, in the sea. And they didn't believe him. And they didn't want to do it. He said, you have to do it or you're going to die. And they wouldn't do it. So finally he says, test me, hang me. Hang me by a rope and see if my words aren't true. And the Be'er Rebbe Be Rebbe explains, they put a rope around his waist, they lowered him over the side of the boat, and as they lowered him into the river, when it, into the sea, when it got up to his waist, the sea became calm. They pulled him back up and again it started raging. They put him back down and it was calm, up and down, back and forth, calm and tempest. They brought him back on the boat and they understood with absolute clarity that it was He that Hashem was targeting. It was for Him. And they said, we will not do this because innocent blood will be on our hands. And they tried to turn the boat back to sea, to shore. A wind that comes, a rather unique and unusual wind, comes and sweeps them back out. And they saw that there was no hope. And they turned to Hashem, Vayikru el Hashem, Vayomru ana Hashem, please Hashem. Alanavdor benefshi says, let us not be killed because of this man, but do not put innocent blood on our hands. They pick Yonah up, they throw him into the sea, and the sea becomes calm. The people on the boat were filled with a great fear. And this is Perak Aleph of Yonah. And I think when you see Perak Aleph of Yonah, you do see Tokif Chasiduso. You do see a tremendous illustration of the man's righteousness. Because, you see, Yonah was not an armchair philosopher. Hashem appeared to him, Kaviyochal and Hashem said to him, Here is my plan. I want you to bring Asher Betshuva. Yonah understood that it meant Asher was to destroy the Jewish nation. And he said, count me out, I'm not part of it. You're the master of the universe, but I'm not participating in his plan. But it wasn't just an ideology. He faced death. He went, as Rabbi Yochanan says, to die. He knew that he was going to be killed. And he faced this tempest, and he understood fully well that he would die, but it didn't budge him. If it means hurting my nation, if it means damaging my people, I'm not a part of it. And even when he understands that he's to be thrown into the sea, and keep in mind, Yonah did not know that there's going to be a dog Nobody told him that this huge fish is going to come swallow him up. He assumed fully well that when he's being thrown overboard, it's to his death. But he was willing to give up his life because he didn't want to be a participant in the damaging of his nation. And what's especially interesting is the fact that Yonah wasn't just willing to risk his life. He's standing up to Hashem. He's looking Hashem Kaviochel in the eye and saying, I don't want a part of it. And I will stand up against you, my Creator, my Master, and I will not do it. His love for His people, his dedication to His people was such that He was willing, if it could be, to violate directly Hashem's will. 
And here's the interesting part of the picture. Yonah was a mamin. And Amuna 101 says, Harbe shluchim lamokom. There are many, many methods that Hashem has to fulfill His will. Which means in plain, simple language, let's in fact say, Yonah says, I'm not playing, I'm not part of your team, count me out. What did Yonah assume would happen? There are many, many other Nevi'im that Hashem could send. If it's not Yonah, there's a whole slew of Nevi'im who could come. And even if you'll tell me not a single Novi would do this, there are There are many, many ways that Hashem could get His will fulfilled. There are tidal waves, there are tsunamis, there are hurricanes, level 5s. There are all types of things that obey Hashem's command. Meaning, Yonah was accomplishing nothing by rebelling against Hashem. He wasn't saving the Jewish people, and he didn't think he was. What he was doing was saying a simple thing. Hashem, you are the master of this earth, your will will be done, but I won't be a part of it. Even though he knew that the Jewish nation would be exiled anyway, even though he knew his protest was for naught, because the exact same din would be carried out, he was saying a simple thing, I cannot be a participant in the damage to my people. They're my nation, my people, I am there to serve them, not to harm them, and I can't be a part of this. He stands up to Hashem, willing to die with that dedication. But one more step of observation. Yonah was not just sacrificing his life, Yonah was rebelling against Hashem. Which means, here's a Novi, who spent his entire life dedicated towards the voters of Hashem, a man who racked up schusim after schusim, who spent his whole life, as the Mesut Hashem describes, dedicated towards Olam Haba, and now in one decision he's risking it all. You see, what he's doing is, he's arguing with Hashem, but not just arguing with Hashem, he's rebelling against Hashem, which means he's risking his Olam Haba. His entire world to come is being put on this decision, and he's saying, I don't care. Not just his life, not just standing up against Hashem, but his Olam Haba for an accomplishment that basically isn't. He's not going to change the din, he's not going to change the outcome, but I'm not playing. If it means hurting my people, my nation, count me out. And I believe that that is tokif chasiduso. I believe that is a beautiful illustration of the man's righteousness, his dedication towards principles, and especially his avas Yisrael. And I believe that's what the Barbanel means when he says that this Novi, one of the reasons that the Novi is written was to tell us exactly this point, tokif chasiduso, to let us know the extent of his avas Yisrael. There is a mitzvah asayim in a Torah to love a fellow Jew. And it's something that we hear about, this concept of Avas Yisrael, loving a Jew. Loving the Jewish nation, loving the Jewish people. And I think typically, while it may sound like a nice ideal, it may sound like a nice concept, I think to most of us the ideal sounds so far removed, so distant from us, that it sounds like a nice theory, but not something practical, and not something that I can really aspire to, that I could work on, that I could be a part of. And I remember once hearing the Rashiva speak about this concept of Avas Yisrael, and he brought a very interesting Chazal. Chazal say, a practical Eitzah, 
a practical Eitzah advice for how to work on the Kama, how to work on not taking revenge, say Chazal, imagine the following mushal. You're holding a piece of meat in your right hand. In your left hand, you take the knife and you begin cutting. Your hand slips and it cuts your hand. What does your right hand do? Your right hand grabs the knife from the left hand, stabs back the left hand. It's absurd. Ridiculous. You stabbed your own hand, you don't grab the knife with your other hand and stab it back because it's one body. Say Chazal, that is the way to work on Nekoma. To understand that the Jewish nation is one body, one unit. If a Jew harms you, a Jew has done you wrong, you don't take revenge because you understand you're part of one unit, one body, this mushroom will help you. And Roshiva asked the question that, again, the mushal is beautiful, the mushal is nice, but it does not sound like a practical etza. The guy hurt me. He slandered me. He damaged me. He spoke badly about me. This is a nice mushal, but it just doesn't fit the reality, and it doesn't sound like a practical example of how to work on the kama. What I'd like to do this evening is spend a few minutes on understanding this chazal and seeing exactly what chazal mean by it being a practical example. So let me begin with one observation. In the animal kingdom, there is a very clear distinction between us and them. Throughout all the species, throughout the entire strata of developed animal kingdom, you'll find an us and a them. Even in the most primitive if you go into the insect world, you'll find paper wasps that look identical, will guard their hive, and will not let in other paper wasps because they come from a different hive. Now, you and I can't tell the difference, but through the sense of smell, they can tell that these paper wasps were not born in this hive, hence they keep them out. Because there's us, there's a few thousand wasps that belong to our colony, there's us, and there's them. As you move up the scale of development, you get to a different level of animal. A tiger salamander is an unusual animal in the sense that it is a predatory animal that is carnivorous, will eat its own. Typically, even predatory animals will eat other species, but rare is it to find an animal that's a cannibal that will eat of its own species. The tiger salamander, interesting enough, is a cannibalistic animal, and it will eat its own, but amazingly, it will not eat its kin. It eats other tiger salamanders, but I guess not mom and dad and sister and brother, because that's not really nice. Interestingly, if you bring up a baby tiger salamander amongst other tiger salamanders, not its kin, even though from birth it's brought up amongst them, it will gobble them up at will, but put it back with its own biological kin, and it won't touch them. Intuitively, there's an us, there's a them. Them is dinner, us, it's not polite to eat mom, so it doesn't touch it. Okay. Now, as you move up further in the animal kingdom, you see an even more distinct and clear us and them. Franz D. Wall, who studies primates, describes that he watched a long-tailed monkey. This long-tailed monkey would go over to a pond, and because it was still and placid, it became effectively a mirror. This long-tailed monkey saw itself in the image and went, to threaten that other monkey. 
then it goes back, bring tens of its buddies, they all gather around the image of themselves, Rah! and they get tense and start to threaten those, them, in the mirror. Now here's the point. Clearly, there's no distinction between them and what they see, because it is them. Yet there's a sense of us and them, and we're attacking, we're enemies, it's us against them. And in the animal kingdom, throughout the animal kingdom, you'll find this concept, the us and the them, oftentimes, especially in primates, they bind together as units, as colonies, very tightly against the them, with internally this piece. As you move further up, amazingly, into the primitive human tribes, even now in the Australia and various parts of the African jungle, you find something that makes Western society look very bad. In the primitive, savage, human societies, there is almost no such concept as sibling rivalry. Meaning, brothers do not fight. In Western society, there are probably 10,000 books written on parenting, how to stop sibling rivalry, and none of them work. Because it's a part of human nature. Brothers fight. But amazingly, in the savage world of primitive man, the brothers don't fight. And you know why that is? Because almost from birth, there's an us versus them syndrome that's going on. You see, brothers have to defend each other or they will die. And from the minute this little toddler is walking, his older brother either stands up for him or he will be killed. And they as a unit, they as a tribe, stand up against other tribes and fight. And brothers stand in arms fighting against the other tribes. For if not, they die. Hence the us versus them amazingly brings peace to them. Now, the reason why I think this concept is relevant to us is because Rabbi Davidowitz, the Roshiva Rochester, once made a very interesting observation. He said that anti-Semitism is the back door to Avas Yisrael. What I believe he means is the following. There is a certain sense of us and a certain sense of them that changes your reality. Not long ago, I was driving on the West Side Highway and I noticed as we pulled up to a stoplight, the car next to me had an unusual flag hanging from the, from the mirror. And I looked a second time and I noticed the reason why it was unusual is because it was a Palestinian flag. And then I looked at the fellow who was sitting next to me, not far away, and the look of cold-blooded hatred was blood-curdling. And after this event, I was speaking to Rabbi Foyer and I said, you know, the guy looked at me like he wanted to kill me. Everybody before he said, you're making a mistake. He didn't want to kill you. He wanted to kill you, your wife, your children. He would have gladly done it all in a flash. And the reality is that in a real sense, as Jews, there's something that we have to understand. And that which we have to understand is that there is an us and there is a them. And while we may have think, we may like to think that we've outgrown anti-Semitism, we sure haven't. My friends, one of the great lessons from the Holocaust, one of the great lessons from the Holocaust, is that Hitler did not distinguish based on your level of religious observance, not based on whether you're Hasidish, Misnagdish, whether you're modern, whether you're black cat, whether you're not. 
You got a J stamped on your passport, and that J meant you were marked for death, regardless of your level, regardless of your belonging. And it was a very important lesson to us from that. And you know what the lesson is? That there's an us and that there's a them. There is a Jewish nation. And what the Jewish nation does affects us all. And we're a unit and a bonded group. And we're dealt with as such. If we're doing as we should, we're invincible, we're untouchable. And if we as a unit aren't, then there are many, many who will rise against us, willingly and gladly kill us. The trains to Auschwitz were mixed, very mixed, very mixed. With every type of Jew, no one distinguished, no one made a difference. And here's the punchline, gentlemen. The next time you're going down Coney Island Avenue, around Avenue C, and you get the little Saudi Arabia over there, and see the hatred. You see, you don't have to go there to Seoul. You don't have to think about being surrounded by a hundred million Arabs. Just go locally and you see the hatred. And then you do the math, a hundred million Arabs, 1.2 billion Muslims, how many untold liberals who will gladly support the Muslim thought process. And you quickly see that we, the very little sheep amongst the wolves, are surrounded, threatened, and then you begin to recognize something, that we are a unit. We're a bonded group, and our fate is tied one to the other. The fate of the Jewish nation is dependent on its entirety. No matter what your religious observance, no matter what type of yarmulke you wear, whether you wear a kippah sruga, whether you wear a suede, whether you wear a Strymel and Shabbos, you are part of a unit, part of a group. And my friends, there's a big, big lesson to learn from that. And that is once you begin identifying, not as us and them internally, but it's us as a unit versus them outside, you quickly come to a very clear recognition. We are one unit, one body. And now I think you can understand Pshat in that Chazal. You see, there's a part of me internally that greatly feels a bond to each one of my nation. There's a part of me that feels a kinship. There's a part of me that feels an attachment. But there's another part of me that puts up barriers. But you see, that part of me that puts up barriers is a nefesh of Bahami. It's a physical part of me, then part of my nefesh that's from the animal kingdom. But there's a trick. And that trick is to understand that we are an us. We are one unit we are in this together against them. Then, once that happens, much like the paper wasp that sees one of its brother and welcomes it, much like the salamander that won't eat its brother or sister, much like the primates that bond together against that scary image in the water, there's an us, there's a unit, and a Jew is quite capable of feeling that sense of kinship, of bonding to any Jew, regardless of observance, regardless of political beliefs, because it's a nation, it's an Am, and when a person does that, their Mekayim, a mitzvah, same in a Torah, called Avas Yisrael. Regardless of whether I know him, regardless of whether he speaks like me, there's a bond, a kinship, and I love him. And I believe that that is what Yonah was doing. Yonah understood that much of the Jewish nation were against him. He was a chassid, he was a righteous, pious Jew, and the Jewish nation were Ovdei Avodah 
Hashem felt they were so wicked that they had to be destroyed. Yonah should have hated them. Yonah's sense of his blood should have been boiling with hatred for those wicked Jews going against Hashem. But that sense was overcome with a sense of loving, a sense of bonding, a sense of being part of this unit, and I will not participate in anything that damages them, even though I know nothing will come of it one way or the other, Hashem still will have His will. I won't be a part, I can't do it, because there was a bond, there was a love, there was an obvious soul that went beyond all boundaries. Whenever the Rashiva speaks in Yeshiva, whenever he says a shmuz in Yeshiva, he doesn't say an application. And the reason why the Rashiva doesn't say an application to the shmuz is because he says, I don't want the shmuz to be lost in the application. People hear the application and they forget the shmuz and think that's the whole shmuz. And I say that now because I want to make an application to the shmuz, but I don't want it to be mistaken. The shmuz is a very broad concept here. Avish Yisrael cuts across many, many dimensions of our behavior, many, many dimensions of our life. And I want to make an application that I don't want to limit it to, but I'd like to make this application anyway. When I was first married, I was walking with my wife on Shabbos. And after about the fourth time that I said, Good Shabbos to someone that I passed, and the person didn't respond, my wife said to me, Do you know that person? And I said, no. She said, so why did you say good Shabbos? And I innocently said, because he's Jewish. And you have to understand the experience. I walked by one person and said, hi, good Shabbos. Nothing. No response. Second person, hi, good Shabbos. No response. Now, not to be derogatory over here, and not to be makatrig against the client's role, but as you're well aware, there's something called the New York City Stare. Now, if you've never experienced a New York City stare, let me describe it for you. It goes like this. Eyes riveted straight ahead, like this. You could pass within an inch of this man. You could wave your hand. You could say, hi, hi, how you doing? Nothing. It's not that he doesn't respond. It's that you don't exist. You see, you're looking at the New York City stare. And that New York City stare views straight through all people, all races, all denominations. It's straight on. And there's nothing that you can do to break that. It's an interesting phenomenon. Now, you may explain to me that this is part of living in the big city. Listen, there's such a rush of humanity. So many people coming down Fifth Avenue. You're going to say hello, hello, hello to everybody. You're going to be like a helicopter. Right? Good. I understand. Okay, fine. What about in shul? Explain to me, even if you're in a large shul, at the end of the day, there are only so many people... 20 people, 30 people, 40, 100 people that you're going to come into proximity of. Could, could you explain to me how it's possible that you don't say good Shabbos to them? You don't say hello? You don't say, what's your name? How are you? But if you don't get the point yet, what about if you're sitting at a table at a wedding and you're sitting directly across from another Jew and you don't say hello? Not only don't you say hello, you give them the New York City stare. You don't exist. And the guy next to you also, you don't exist. I'm talking to this guy, and this is my conversation for the next hour and a half. You don't exist, you don't exist. And by the way, all the rest of you guys at this table also don't exist. Now, just a very quick observation. I guarantee your parents and certainly your grandparents didn't act that way. You see, in Europe, before the war, 
there was a basic fundamental understanding amongst Jews. When you met a Jew in the street, you said the words, Vasmachta Yid. How is a Jew doing? It was basic. It was like, it was the way you were brought up. It was just part of your blood. You said, Hi, how are you? Vasmachta Yid. We, the Jewish nation, have learned something from the Gentiles amongst whom we live, from the big city in which we do dwell. And that is this attitude of the us versus them. But it's not the Jewish nation versus the Gentile world. It's me against you, 14th Avenue versus 13th, my type of shul versus your type of shul, white shirts versus colored shirts. And all of these subdivisions, and my friends, the point is that it's not Jewish. That phenomena and that behavior is not a Jewish activity. It is a Gentile activity, a learnt behavior that we've adopted because we live amongst the people who we live amongst. And I think it warrants thinking about for a moment, and it warrants working on. And I guarantee when you work on it, you will feel silly. You will feel silly when you walk in the street on Shabbos, and you say, get Shabbos, and you get the New York City stare. But you know what happens, amazingly enough? If you do it on a regular basis, the first time the guy ignores you. The second time he ignores By the third time he says, do I know you? And then you say, no, but my name is so-and-so. Hi, we do live right next door <laughs> for 10 years. <laughs> I figured I'd say hello. You know? Oh, <laughs> sorry. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Get it? Yep, that's, that's, uh, that's the joke. But my friends, it's not a joke. It's not a joke because it's a reality. And you have to work on it. You have to work on it because that's the way a Jew is. There is one unit called the Jewish nation, we're bonded. What happens to one happens to the other. We're a nation. We're a people. We're an am. There's a mitzvah, say, to love a Jew for no reason. Not because he's got money. Not because he's got contacts that I need. Not because he's more learned. Not because he's less learned. Not because I want to make a bal at him. Not, not for any reason. Simply because he's Jewish. I have a mitzvah, say, from the Torah to love my nation, be dedicated to my people for no reason. Other than it's my people, it's my nation. And that's what Yonah lived that was his life. And when Hashem said to him, I want you to go destroy the people, I can't do it. I can't be a part of it. Even though I know it won't make a difference. Even though it means standing up to Hashem. Even though it means giving up this world. Even though it means giving up Olam Haba. I can't do it. It's my nation. It's my people. I can't be a part of its destruction. Count me out. And that is a very righteous man. That is Tokif Chasiduso. And that's something that we have to learn. And the great trick is to look around and see the threats see the threats and understand that we are a people. We have a history and we are a nation. And when you think in those terms, you view each other differently, you view us as an Am, and you see us as a people. I want to close with one observation. And that observation is, what if Yonah didn't do tshuva? What if Yonah was swallowed up by that fish, died in that fish, finished? didn't daven and didn't do tshuva. I'd imagine what would happen would, would have been, Yonah would have gone up to Shemayim, the great chassid, the great righteous man, and it would have judged him, and the judgment would have been pretty clear, he would have been sent to Gehenna. Because he rebelled against Hashem, ran away from a nevuah, and said to Hashem, if it could be, I'm not playing your game, and such a man is a Russia. And gentlemen, here's the punchline. With all of his chasidus, 
with all of his righteousness, with all of his idealism, with all of his altruism, dedicated to his people, had he gone to his death with that on his dying lips, he would have been judged a Russia and would live for the rest of eternity to pay for that. And I think there is a very key lesson here. And that is idealism, altruism is great provided you're on the right team. Provided that you're serving Hashem and not some other agenda. Because at the end of the day, it may have been beautiful to see, it may be a wonderful Muslim lesson, but Yonah was wrong. And the only reason we talk about him now as a great man, the only reason the Navi was written by him about him was because he did shuva and came back. But with all of his drive, with all of his idealism, had he gone against the Ratzon Hashem, it would have counted for naught, and it would have been buried in Russia. And I think that too is a very important lesson. That idealism, altruism is great, provided you're following Das Torah. Provided that you're on the derech, provided that you're asking Dolim, provided that you're asking Tamir Chachamim, Eizu derech Yelchubo, which is the right way. Because you can love your nation, you can be dedicated to your people as people have before. But if you're misguided, all of your love, all of your dedication is not going to help if you're going down the wrong path. And I think that's a great lesson to learn from Yonah. To learn what it means, obviously, to be bound, bounded to your nation, to be one with it, to love them. But also to learn what it means to follow Das Torah, that at the end of the day I have to subjugate my will to Ratzon Hashem, because at the end of the day Hashem is the Master and my Creator. May Kaddish Baruch Hu grant us the wisdom, the moral strength to love each other as one nation and to follow the Ratzon Hashem properly. You've been listening to The Shmooze, presented by Teferis B'nai Torah. For more information on The Shmooze, please visit us at www.theshmooze.com where you can download all the schmoozing free of charge, as well as view source sheets and address questions or comments on this or any other schmooze. The Schmooze is completely funded by private donations. We need your help to continue our work. All donations are tax-deductible and count as MISO. Please help us help others by calling 866-613-TORAH. That's 866-613-TORAH. Or you can make your donation right on the web at www.theschmooze.com.